sister, where have you gone? Mother, we've been waiting so long Been wondering for years why they made you go The winters are colder somehow Without the warmth of your smile You were the world, but now you're the sky I'll wear my red dress for you tonight. At some point in time, you may have heard the acronym MMIWG. But what does this mean? Indigenous communities know all too well. Missing and murdered indigenous women and girls refers to exactly what it sounds like. There is an epidemic of violence against indigenous women, girls, and 2S LGBTQQIA people, prompting indigenous communities to start the MMIWG movement. Missing and murdered indigenous women, girls, and members of the 2S LGBTQQIA community is a perpetuation of the genocide indigenous peoples face. Victims of MMIWG are mothers, sisters, aunties, cousins, friends, community members. They are not statistics. Today, I will be speaking about this and answering to the best of my ability some questions that may be associated with this topic. Firstly, I want to begin by speaking about intergenerational trauma and how it's maintained by the ongoing genocide of indigenous peoples. Intergenerational trauma can be defined as a trauma that occurs in one generation with the negative consequences of this trauma being adopted by future generations. In indigenous communities, this trauma is often the result of historical oppression, such as having had experience in the residential school system. When we look at modern-day oppression of these communities, we may see food insecurity, lack of access to mental and general health care, lack of housing, lack of clean drinking water, and missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls. These are not the only examples of oppression that could be listed. These oppressions merely assist in the continuation of intergenerational trauma. Imagine trauma as a literal weight, the kind you'd find in a gym. Those who have experienced trauma carry this weight, and when another generation is born, a weight of equal measure is given to them to carry. Now, this generation also experiences trauma in the form of the modern-day oppression discussed. This is an additional weight given to them to deal with. The generation after them gets all the weight of their parents, along with, again, the weight of the trauma from current oppressions they may face. This trauma becomes heavier and heavier. However, it's difficult to deal with this trauma when it's still occurring on a regular basis. In terms of numbers, it's hard to say exactly how many missing and murdered there are. 
This is due to a lack of an effective database, failure to identify cases by ethnicity, and underreporting of violence against indigenous women and girls. In a 2014 report by the RCMP, it was stated that there have been more than 1,200 missing and murdered indigenous women and girls between 1980 and 2012. However, indigenous women's groups document the number to be over 4,000 in Canada alone. Two databases, one compiled by the group Families of Sisters in Spirit and the other by the Sovereign Bodies Institute, quote, recorded at least 140 deaths that were the result of homicides, suspicious deaths, and deaths in police custody or while in the care of the child welfare system between 2016 and 2019, and 131 cases between 2016 and 2019 involving homicide, death in custody, and suspicious death, respectively. These databases showed the rate of at least three deaths of indigenous women and girls per month during that time period. The Sovereign Bodies Institute database shows that there were a total of 359 missing and murdered cases between 2015 and 2019, including 167 involving homicide, death in custody, and suspicious death, with 2019 having 19 cases already by June. Additionally, it recorded 192 cases of missing persons in the same time span, with 2019 having 16 cases by June. Anita Lucasi, who has a database that's compiled 2,049 cases, said there are similar patterns of missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls cases in Canada and the U.S. The National Crime Information Center reports that, in 2016, there were 5,712 reports of missing Native American women and girls, though the U.S. Department of Justice's federal missing persons database only logged 116 cases. Although very little research has been done with respect to numbers or causes of missing and murdered 2S LGBTQQIA persons, an Ontario study of gender diverse and two-spirit indigenous people found that 73% had experienced some form of violence due to transphobia, with 43% having experienced physical and or sexual violence. <laughs> The National Inquiry into Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women and Girls began on September 1st, 2016. By the time it had concluded, on June 30th, 2019, it had released a 1,200-page report with 231 calls for justice. This report gave recommendations to everyone from the government, the media, health and wellness service providers, the police, attorneys, educators, social workers, extractive and development industries, correctional services, and Canadians alike. And while we are told that some amount of change is happening, it's difficult to see where it's been implemented. If you looked on the Government of Canada's website, you'd be able to find a comprehensive list of all the actions they've taken since the launch of the inquiry. These actions include an allocation of $50 million in funding to providing health and support services to survivors and their families, to support a national oversight body at the RCMP, to support a review of police policies and practices, and to commemorate the lives of Indigenous women and girls. As well as this, they are providing funding to support the revitalization of Indigenous laws, introducing several pieces of legislation that include measures to address violence against women, and providing funding to First Nations Child and Family Services, as well as implementing other strategies outlined on their website. Crown Indigenous Relations Minister Carolyn Bennett has stated that the National Action Plan recommended by the National Inquiry will be out by June of 2020. Justice Minister David Lametti has stated that the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous People may be legislated by 2020 as well. The head of the RCMP would not commit to following the recommendations of the National Inquiry, but promised to review the report. 
While all of this is well and good, the reality is violence against Indigenous women, girls, and members of the 2S LGBTQIA community is still happening, and these organizations are still systemically faulty. Note, you can read faulty as racist. The proof is in the pudding. When the Trudeau government is trying to deny compensation to First Nations children and their families separated and harmed by a broken and underfunded child welfare system that discriminated against children living on reserve, and the RCMP are prepared to shoot Indigenous protesters defending their land, it's clear that reconciliation is not a priority. In fact, some are saying reconciliation, in light of this, is dead. So how are we to expect that these organizations change to be better for indigenous communities when they're actively demonstrating that they will do, as they have always done, what's in their own best interests? This is like expecting your racist family member to suddenly start fact-checking the media they consume to make sure it's not biased of their own volition. We see this faulty system in play when we examine cases of missing and murdered indigenous women and girls. What I'm going to be discussing next may be triggering to some. On October 30th, 1999, four-year-old Amanda Simpson was brought to the hospital in a coma with massive head and abdominal injuries. She died three days later. Days before she was brought to the hospital, her sister had told an adult that their stepfather was beating them. Despite years of complaints to a local child welfare agency, the child protection worker responded by saying she would not investigate and that Amanda's sister needed to be counseled on truth and fiction. Prince George RCMP charged the stepfather in connection to her injuries shortly after the incident, but the charges were stayed when Amanda died. No new charges were ever laid. 20-year-old Cheyenne Fox was found dead at the bottom of a Toronto high-rise on April 25, 2013. She had fallen from the 24th floor. Toronto police determined that there was no evidence of criminal activity in her death, but her case remains open. There were three 911 calls in the hours leading up to her death, but police did not respond. Angela Meyer went missing on November 27, 2010. It took a month for the RCMP to conduct an air search. Since her disappearance in 2010, the RCMP have contacted Angela's family approximately five times. 15-year-old Leah Anderson never came home after telling her aunt that she was going ice skating on January 4, 2013. Two days later, she was found dead on a snowmobile trail, her body badly disfigured. Homicide investigators stayed in the community for only a few days after Leah's death. In 2017, a man was arrested in connection with her murder, but was released without charges. On July 27, 1996, 14-year-old Amanda Cook's body was found beaten and partially clothed in a wooded area near the fairground she had gone to with her family four days earlier. An autopsy revealed that she had died from multiple blows to the head with a blunt object. Several months later, Clayton George Montuck was charged with second-degree murder. His first trial ended in a stay. In 1998, his second trial ended in a hung jury. In his final trial in 2000, a judge found him not guilty. Mentuck had written a confession letter to Amanda's parents after his arrest in 1996, but it was deemed unreliable and inadmissible in court. Amanda's mother still sees Mentuck around the community. Thelma Pete 
53, was beaten to death on December 2, 2004. She was struck in the head approximately 25 times in an abandoned school by two men. These men, Richard Collins and James French, were charged with manslaughter after her death. It was revealed that after Thelma was beaten, Collins and French took her to French's apartment where she died on the apartment floor from her injuries. Both men were acquitted. At 17 in 1996, Amanda Bartlett was on the run from a child and family services group home. Weeks after she had run away, her family received a letter stating that because Amanda was 17, Child and Family Services no longer had an obligation to follow her after she took off. Her family tried to report her as a missing person beginning in 1996, only to be turned away. One Winnipeg police officer said to Amanda's sister, Janet, on one occasion, I'm sorry, Janet, we don't do family reunions. It took 12 years and the help of Amnesty International to finally have Amanda classified as a missing person. Tina Fontaine's case is one of the more well-known recent examples of missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls. Tina went to visit her birth mother, Valentina Duck, in June of 2014. Her aunt, who cared for her, only found out afterwards that Valentina had lost custody of her kids and was out on the streets. When Tina didn't return home, her aunt voluntarily put her in the care of Manitoba Child and Family Services. According to police reports, Tina was last seen in downtown Winnipeg on August 8, 2014. On August 17th, Tina's body was pulled from the Red River. She was wrapped in a bag. The Winnipeg Police Service charged Raymond Cormier in December 2015 with second-degree murder. He was acquitted on February 22, 2018. A month after the trial ended, Crown prosecutors decided they would not appeal the case. As an Indigenous woman, these stories terrify me. They reach deep into my being with a sadness I can't fully explain because they tell me that as an indigenous person, as an indigenous woman, I'm not only more likely to experience violence, I am more likely to be discarded by the systems that are meant to serve justice for this violence. If you don't have to experience this reality, I envy you. <laughs> The question becomes, how did society let things get this far? Is it simply due to the systemic racism discussed? While I do believe this plays a part, I also think that some of this can be explained by the bystander effect. This effect claims that individuals are less likely to offer help to a victim when others are present. Everyone assumes that someone else is going to be the person to do something, so no one does. I have a suspicion that when it comes to MMIWG, there are those who do not care, those who are unaware, those who are unaware because they don't care, and those who are simply acting as bystanders, who are waiting for someone else to do something first. If you need a sign, this is it. Do something. <laughs>
Some things are known about what can potentially lead to missing and murdered Indigenous women, girls, and 2S LGBTQQIA people. The National Inquiry's report found resource development projects and their man camps to be a threat to them. The increased rates of violence that come from these are largely the result of mostly non-Indigenous men migrating into Indigenous communities while having no stake in them. These industries are involved in increased drug and alcohol-related offenses, sexual offenses, domestic violence, and gang-related violence, as well as sex industry activities in the host communities. Work environments in the extraction industry can often be hyper-masculine and hyper-sexualized. For Indigenous women working in these environments, there are elevated levels of workplace racism, sexual harassment, and violence. Many assume that Indigenous peoples are to blame for their own victimization due to, quote, high-risk lifestyles. But according to Statistics Canada, even when all differentiating factors are accounted for, Indigenous women are still at a significantly higher risk of violence than non-Indigenous women. Society seems to have a tendency to turn atrocities against marginalized communities into something easier to stomach, something digestible. Part of this is a strong need to place blame. And in this case, as in many cases, the blame falls on the victim themselves. The reality is often much more convoluted than this, especially when absorbing this digestible content is itself a problem. For example, the oversexualization of Indigenous women is another factor that can lead to missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls. However, the media and therefore the general public often portray Indigenous women in a hypersexualized way. Perfect evidence of this is that you can go to almost any costume store and pick up costumes that are meant to be representative of scantily dressed indigenous women. Actively consuming and contributing to this stereotype is harmful. Additionally, when you label someone as solely an object of sexual nature and refuse to see them as a human, you are committing a violent act. This objectification essentially strips a person of rights because to the individual objectifying them, they are no longer human their sex exclusively. Not only is this an act that is itself unempathetic, it opens the door for acts that are increasingly violent due to this lack of empathy. In some communities, sexually exploited indigenous children and youth make up 90% of the visible sex trade, even in places where indigenous people make up less than 10% of the population. The majority of indigenous women who are sexually exploited or trafficked were sexually abused at an early age. This makes the over-sexualization of indigenous women and girls a very scary thing. It has consequences. The belief that indigenous communities are responsible for missing and murdered indigenous women and girls is added to by the idea that indigenous men are responsible for the majority of murders of indigenous women. However, although according to the RCMP, indigenous men are the main perpetrators of violence against indigenous women, stating 70% of the murders of indigenous women that have been solved have been committed by the indigenous men, the Forensic Document Review Project, established by the National Inquiry, determined that the 70% figure was unreliable and shouldn't be considered an accurate or complete statement on the perpetrators of violence against Indigenous women and girls. In March 2015, the Aboriginal Affairs Minister at the time stated the 70% statistic during a private meeting. 
A month later, in April 2015, the RCMP commissioner at the time issued a statement confirming the 70% figure, declaring that on the basis of the information reviewed in preparation of the 2014 report, the RCMP determined that 70% of offenders were of Aboriginal origin. This figure was included in neither the 2014 nor the 2015 report. Although they may not be the main perpetrators of violence, the loss of traditional roles for men and boys due to the impact of colonization and the high rates of unemployment and intergenerational trauma all add up to a low sense of self-worth among men and boys and an increased inclination towards violence and harmful behavior. Therefore, when we have discussions about healing in Indigenous communities, it's important to include Indigenous men in the conversation, as their healing is just as crucial when it comes to moving forward. Awareness of this issue is important for the exact reason that lack of awareness about this issue is damaging. If the world is acting as a bystander in a time of crisis, the issue will continue. This is not solely an indigenous problem. This is a problem that reaches past the confines of our communities into the outside world. Man camps, over-sexualization of indigenous women, historical and modern oppression, systemically racist institutions, all these barriers to healing will remain if the public chooses to stay ignorant to the topic of missing and murdered indigenous women and girls and two-spirited, lesbian, gay, bisexual, trans, queer, questioning, intersex, asexual, and gender diverse people. Indigenous communities have been working towards a solution for as long as MMIWG has been a problem. It's time for Canada and the U.S. to step up. No more stolen sisters. Thank you for listening to this podcast. Until next time. Mm-hmm.